You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We are studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this summer. This is week two. Last week, I introduced the books and framed them around two major themes. Uh, The first is the story of exile. When you open up to Ezra 1, you see that the people of God are in Persia, which is not where they're supposed to be. And that taps into the theme of exile that runs through the Bible. In short, exile is the human condition We have all lost our way because of sin. We're all far from home. We don't know how to get back to God. We're utterly lost. The second major theme is the story of return from exile, which we see in Ezra and in Nehemiah. The story of return teaches us that we can't change the human condition. Only Jesus can do that. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we get these three parallel stories about three great leaders. But no matter how great their achievements are, they're all compromised by human failures. And so the story of return points to Jesus as our only hope. Today, we're looking at the first of those three parallel stories. And when you find it in Ezra 1 through 6. Here we see the first wave of exiles sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Now, the temple is a big deal. The temple is where God made his dwelling. It's where the people went to meet with God. So the focus on rebuilding the temple is about the priority of worship in their lives and in our lives. So we should expect to learn something about the human condition as it relates to worship. And we should expect to feel our need for Jesus to change us. When I read Ezra 1 through 6 as a whole, the thing that stands out to me is that return from exile is not like up and to the right. You know, it's full of ups and downs, which is kind of nice because we can relate to that. Uh, I've been in vocational ministry for about 20 years. And so I have seen lots of people on the mountaintop, and I've seen people in the darkest of valleys. Some of us are more volatile than others, but we're all familiar with the reality that there are some seasons where we feel close to God and life just makes sense, and that there are some seasons when we feel distant from God and life is murky. I'm familiar with that reality. Just as an example, um, A couple months ago, I got on a little reading kick. I read like five or six books in a few weeks, which is a lot for me. And I was, I was feeling pretty awesome. Like seriously, I mean, it was really edifying and energizing. I was feeling great. And I remember having this thought. I thought, I'm probably going to read 50 books this year. And I thought about how much better I'm going to be after I read 50 books. Now, since having that thought, I have not read one book. Seriously, zero, not one. I was thinking 50 books. That was my conservative estimate of what this year was going to be like for me. So yeah, I I understand momentum swings. Look, there are days when I feel connected to God and energized to do the work that he has for me. 
But there are also days when I end up on some job site trying to figure out if pastor skills translate to any other industry. They don't, so here we are. I get it. Life feels murky on those days. What I'm trying to say is humanity doesn't have a good track record when it comes to faithfulness. We get excited about God, we get off to a good start, but we drift. This is what happened to Israel. This is why they were in exile. They said to God, we will do everything you say. And they meant it. They, they really wanted to keep the covenant. But they failed miserably. They neglected God's laws and they worshipped other gods. Why couldn't they do it? Because they couldn't change the human condition. The human condition is waywardness and unfaithfulness. More often than we realize, we're saying things like, I just need to get back on track with God. Look, that's what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to get back on track with God. And there are starts and stalls all the way through this story. But here's the good news in Ezra 1 through 6. The good news is that God is faithful. He is the same God that delivered their fathers from Egypt, and he is delivering them from exile in Babylon. He is the same God who dwelt in Solomon's temple, and he is going to dwell in this temple. Through all of their ups and downs, they worship God. Specifically, they exult in his faithfulness. In Ezra 3, they sing this song of praise, The Lord is good for his steadfast love. His faithful love endures forever toward Israel. We will mainly be in Ezra 3 today. So if you want to open up there, we're going to see in this chapter three ways that God is faithful to us. Here's the first thing. God is faithful to forgive. As I said last week, rebuilding Jerusalem is not going to be just about infrastructure and the economy and a way of life. First and foremost, before anything else, it's about restored relationship with God. So it's important that the first thing they do is they build the altar. Ezra 3 verse 2, look at it with me. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Burnt offerings were sacrifices made for the sins of the people. Um, the sins of the worshiper were symbolically placed on the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was consumed by the wrath of God against sin. And because God accepted the sacrifice, the worshiper was accepted by God. It was temporary. They had to do this on the regular, but that's how it worked. They knew that this was the first step in a long journey toward restoration with God. Uh, this week, I was introduced to a young woman here in Austin who is homeless and pregnant, and um, it's just been a joy to get to know her and to help her connect to different services in town. But the first day we talked, she just talked a lot about wanting to like, get back on track, wanting to go to church and have a more stable life. Uh, which are all good things. But then the next morning, like at 5.39 a.m., she texted me, and this is what the text said. It said, 
I prayed last night and I asked God to forgive me and I feel much better. And I just thought, man, she gets it. She's got a long road of restoration, but she gets it. It starts right here. Any kind of getting right with God and getting back on track with God starts with dealing with sin. Often, when people say they want to get back on track with God, what they really mean is they just want to live a better life. And their approach is just to start doing things that they think God would be pleased with. I know that feels like the right thing to do, but I want you to see that that's really just a way of trying to save yourself, trying to be good enough so you will be acceptable to God. It won't work. You won't find God that way. If you want to get right with God, go to the altar, which in our case is the cross of Christ. We don't have an altar where we make sacrifices for sins. We have a Savior who gave himself up as a sacrifice for sin. The cross is the final altar. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. If you want to get back on track with God, go there, look to him, because everyone who believes in him is declared righteous before God. That means we have right standing with God. We have peace with God. More than that, we have access to God. And so, if you feel distant, whenever you've drifted, for whatever reason, the scriptures say, come boldly to the throne of grace. Draw near to God with a true heart. Walk in the light and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. This is the good news of Jesus. The altar points to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, which assures us that we worship a God who is faithful to forgive. So, in building the altar, they're off to a good start, aren't they? But then there's a delay in the work. There's a work stoppage in the temple construction project. And you see it noted in chapter 4, verse 24. I'll just read it to you. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, I'll just tell you, when you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, it's not written chronologically, it's written theologically, and so there's lots of timeline issues. I'm going to save you from the minutiae. Here's what I think happens. They build the altar in the reign of Cyrus, and then there's a delay, and we'll talk about that delay in just a minute. And then they later resume the work of laying the foundation of the temple and building the temple. All right, so let's talk about the reason for the delay and see God's faithfulness in that to bring them back to himself. There are two reasons for the delay, and the first one is opposition to the rebuilding effort. So in chapter 3, verse 3, it says that fear was upon them because of the people of the lands. And you go down to chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, it says, The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to, to build, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. The theme of opposition runs all throughout these stories, and so we're going to do a whole sermon on that when we get to Nehemiah 4. 
So I'm not going to say much about it today. Um, here, I'm just going to say that there's opposition, and it causes them to stop building. What I do want to talk about is what happens after that. And we learn about that in the prophet Haggai. So during this time with Zerubbabel, there's two prophets preaching to Israel, Haggai and Zechariah. Here's what Haggai tells us. It seems that after they stopped because of the opposition, over time they drifted further and further from God and from the work that he had called them to. They went back to their homes and they got on with their lives. And you know how it is when you get in a rut, the nature of a rut is you just kind of stay in it. So what's the rut? Haggai, chapter 1, verse 2. This is the prophet, is really the Lord speaking to Zerubbabel through the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lays in ruins? You see the rut? The rut is that they have become preoccupied with comfort and luxury and the pursuit of those things. They're building nice new houses and they're skipping church to do house projects while the house of God is neglected and lies in ruins. There is no amount of luxury that can satisfy the human soul because we were made for God, for the worship of God and to be satisfied in Him. John Piper says, If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression and guilt and frustration. That's what Haggai is saying in verse 6. He says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. In other words, you keep trying to build your life on the things of this world, and it's never enough. And the reason it keeps coming up empty is because God makes it come up empty. That's what he says in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is why we drift. Preoccupation with our own affairs and our own little kingdoms. This is what happened to them. So what's the answer? How do they get back on track with God? Verse 8. The Lord says, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. In other words, give of your money and your time and your energy for the worship of God and the mission of God. That's what you were made for. To glorify God is the deepest satisfaction of the human soul. This is why God shouts through the prophets. It's why the Spirit convicts us of sin, because He's bringing us back to Himself. It might mean going through trials. It might mean being disciplined by God. It might mean a hard word of truth from a friend or a prophet. 
But all of that is evidence that we worship a God who is faithful to bring us back. And he does. After almost 20 years of neglect and frustration, the people listen to the word of the prophets, and they get back to work. They get back on track rebuilding the temple. And that leads us to the third thing. So God's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to bring us back when we go astray. And finally, he's faithful to finish his work. The note in chapter 3, verse 6 of Ezra, after the wall was built, is that the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And so it kind of leaves a little cliffhanger there. I think this is where the delay happens, and and this is the work that needs to be done that Haggai is talking about. So in verse 7, we see the gathering of the materials, and then beginning in verse 8, we see the work of laying the foundation. Now, pick up in Ezra 3, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with the trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with the cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praise the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They're off to another great start, aren't they? God is at the center, and there is joy in the community. Look at this celebration. Vestments? It's like a pastor uniform for worship. I want one of those. Trumpets, cymbals, responsive singing and shouting. This is, this is quite a scene. Like, in our church, if somebody manages to get a hand up, we're like, man, God is on the move up in here. Somebody gets two hands up, who? forget it. Who knows what's going to happen in here? I'm just playing with you. It's okay. The point isn't about how we worship. What stands out to me here is how much they love to worship together. Do you love the gathered worship of God's people? I do. I love seeing the people come in the doors, bringing all of their ups and downs with them. I love the call to worship, just being jolted into God's presence. I love the rhythms of confession and assurance and profession. And I know it's easy to kind of get, just go through the motions in those things, but when you really engage with what's being said and what's happening, it's powerful. I love singing with one voice. I love the way the Spirit attends the preached Word of God and stirs our heart with it and applies the truth of it to our lives. I love watching people go up for communion. Just the little bit of chaos of it, but really the patience and the deference and the solidarity of it. I love taking communion. The mystery of the body and the blood. The wonder of being nourished by it. I love the benediction, especially when Todd does it. Like when he puts his big old hand out there, he just does it with such certainty and assurance. I mean, you feel the hand of God upon us, blessing us and sending us out as his people. I love all of it. We're just an ordinary church. We're doing the same things every week. There's really not much to it when you think about it. But I love it. 
I celebrate it like they celebrated the foundation that was laid. The foundation was not impressive, but it was theirs and they loved it. That's how I feel about our church. It's not that impressive, but it's ours and I love it. But they didn't all love it. Verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, the old men, these are the guys that have been around for a long time, they saw the first temple, Solomon's temple. The old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. It's impossible to know for certain what caused them to weep, but it seems like they're disappointed. It seems like there's a note of sadness because of the glory of the first temple. They had done all of this work, and they're looking at it, and it just pales in comparison. And so on one hand, the the text shows us that the final joyous restoration of the true temple, the new Jerusalem, that's all to come in the future. And so they're right to long for more. We're right to long for more. I mean, Jesus has come. He's the true temple. He's the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He's the firm foundation, the chief cornerstone. He's the mediator between God and man. But we are still waiting for his return when he will be the light and the glory of New Jerusalem. So we understand this note of sadness, this longing for more. But in their disappointment, they stopped working. Uh, We talked about this last week. Some of us drift toward the waiting, but it's kind of a disengaged waiting. And that's not what God called them to, and it's not what God calls us to. We're called to work while we wait. Haggai chapter 2. This is a different sermon that Haggai gives, but he speaks to this. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So he, he calls it for what it is. But then he says, Yet now be strong and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Then in Haggai 2, verse 7, he says, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So they're discouraged because their work feels so small. It's not impressive. But they can't see what God sees. They can't see the glory that is to come. It makes me think of um, when Jesus fed the 5,000. You know, the disciples come to him and they're like, you know, the people are hungry. We don't have any food. He's like, well, what do you have? Like, well, I got some fish and I got a few pieces of bread. It's not much. It's small. It's insignificant. But Jesus sees something much different. Jesus sees this little bit of food when administered faithfully, multiplying, and he sees the glory of the crowd being filled with his provision. They can't see it, but God sees it. And so he says, take courage and get to work. This is one way that we get back on track with God. Just do the next thing that he's asking you to do, no matter how small it seems. And then do the next thing. One thing at a time, trusting his plans. Do it in faith. 
Do it in dependence upon God and in the power of His Spirit, but do it. Take courage and get to work. That's how you get back on track. Zechariah chapter 4. Remember, Zechariah is also one of the preachers during this time. He says, Whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice because God is faithful to finish his work. Don't despise the small things. You know, the daily disciplines, the unseen act of kindness, the little prayers that you throw up, um, helping people in need, serving in the church. My goodness, the thousands of little moments that is parenting. Don't despise any of them. Because when Jesus returns, all of this will be revealed. All these small things will be shown to be the ordained means of a very big God. We worship a God who is faithful to finish his work. And he does it through our small things. Let me close with this. This is a picture of our future worship when Jesus returns. This is what this temple is ultimately pointing to. Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You hear the temple language? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. This is our future. No more ups and downs, but constant, sustained joy in the presence of God. Until then, we work while we wait. We worship while we wait. Because God is faithful. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to bring us back when we go astray. He's faithful to finish the work that he started. So, We can come to him. We can come back to him. And soon, he'll come to us. Let's praise him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.